0: When did Abraham become the father of many nations? It wasn't when Isaac was born, and it wasn't even here on this mountaintop. It's all the way back in chapter 12. In chapter 12, when God called Abraham, he makes his first promise. And the Lord, in verse 7 of chapter 12, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to to your offspring I will give this land. And then down in verse 8, there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Today on the Songtime broadcast, we continue our study in the story of Abraham as we discover the steps of faith that Abraham has made throughout his life and and what God was doing in his life. But ultimately, we discover the faithfulness of God, who is always faithful to keep his promises. Stay tuned for that. But first, we're joined once again by Todd Nettleton as we talk about what's happening around the world with the persecuted church and what we can learn from them and even be emboldened by them to be firm in our faith. The many voices are coming together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. I'm incredibly excited to see what God is doing in my little corner of the world. I pastor a church in South Chatham, and uh, I love our community. God is doing great things. It's a small community. But I believe that God is doing great things here on Cape Cod and even throughout our whole region in the Northeast and New England. I see God working. I see God moving and bringing people together for the sake of his kingdom. God is doing amazing things. That's hard to see, especially when we hear all of the statistics that uh, over 50 counties are under 3% evangelical here in the Northeast. With those challenges and all of those sort of surveys giving us the bad news, it's hard to see the good news. The same could be said around the world, especially when it comes to the persecuted church. Well, our guest today is Todd Nettleton from Voice of the Martyrs, and they help us stay informed on how to better pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering in chains. But one of the ways that uh, we can also be encouraged by them is the amazing testimonies that causes thriving of the gospel, even under strict scrutiny, strict persecution and laws against Christians. And one of the areas that we don't hear nearly enough about is what's happening in Iran. So Todd, tell us a little bit about what's happening on the ground in the country of Iran, a country that we often get very negative news about,
1: but there are remarkable things happening with the church. There is a great hunger for the gospel in Iran, and um, it is in many ways, God has used the Islamic government to turn people against Islam, because uh, the economy is in shambles, the the country is frustrated, the people are frustrated, and, and the government says we're doing everything we do according to Islamic principles. We're running this country just exactly how the Quran tells us to run it. And so after 40 years of that, the people look around and say, well, if if this is what following the Quran gets you— we don't want to follow it anymore. We don't want to do that anymore. What else is out there? Hey, and so there is that that hunger for something else, something that works, something that doesn't produce poverty. It doesn't produce the highest drug addiction rate in the world. Um, and, and so there's that hunger for the gospel. And uh, I just got a story this week from uh, one of our contacts inside Iran. This is an Assyrian family. So they traditionally Christian family. The the people of Iran would look at their family and say, oh, you're Christians, uh, as Armenians would be the same way. They would say, oh, Armenians are Christians. Okay, that's fine. So every child in Iran in a public school goes to what a religious education class, and for the Muslim kids, it is an Islamic education, but for the you know, Armenians and Assyrians and people who are traditionally Christian, they are not required to go to this Islamic studies class. But uh, one of our contacts recently, their daughter, there, there was a new teacher that day, there was some confusion, and she ended up in this Islamic studies class and the teacher began to ask questions and when it got to her turn the teacher asked her a question and and all the other students said oh she's a christian you shouldn't she she shouldn't be here she shouldn't answer that question uh, but this young girl answered the question anyway and started talking about Jesus and started talking about what the bible says and an amazing thing happened the the teacher said hey next week in our islamic studies class we're actually going to turn the whole class over to this girl we want to hear about what christians believe what what the christians think so so next week she's going to get a chance to share with us and then after class that teacher actually asked her for a bible and said hey could you could i borrow a bible could you get me a bible i'm interested i'd like to read a little more um, so all, all because this little girl ended up in the quote-unquote wrong classroom, uh, the, the classroom where she wasn't supposed to be. God used that to to present an opportunity to share the gospel, and, and thankfully she was faithful in that situation. Uh, but I think you see the hunger of Iranian people when, when even the Islamic instructor in the class says, hey— Do you have a Bible I could borrow? I I really want to read the Bible. I I want to know what, what the Christians believe.
0: We actually hear a lot about Iran in our mainstream media. And this is another thing we always try to remind our listeners. Whenever you see a, a, a presentation in the news about a country, there's a reminder to pray for them. And you can find out way more information about what's actually happening in those countries by visiting the Ministry of Voice of the Martyrs at uh, their website, persecution.com. Uh, but one of the things that we often forget when we're hearing negative things, in particular about a country that is an enemy of the United States, is to think of them or see them as uh, a a horrible people. But the truth is, what we're not seeing on the news is what is actually happening on the ground. And there are so many Christians there living out their faith and accomplishing great things for the kingdom of God. If we don't keep that in mind, it's easy to lose sight of that there are brothers and sisters in those countries who are uh, are advancing the kingdom of God and doing great things and, and really being tested in their
1: faith it it is amazing to see god work and um you know i've heard some of the most amazing stories from people in iran who are following jesus christ and the the hunger of the god i've had someone tell me an iranian christian tell me if if you will just say jesus out loud people will come and talk like people will come and say did you say jesus do you know jesus could you tell me more i'm interested to know more about him i've i've heard this i've heard this is that true and uh, there is just so much curiosity and so much hunger uh, that the church almost can't help but grow. And the government, obviously the Islamic government, is very frustrated by that. They are very upset that all of the persecution, all of the, the limitations they put, they cannot stop the church in Iran from growing. We've been talking with my good friend Todd Nettleton from Voice of the Martyrs,
0: a ministry that keeps us informed on how to better pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering in chains, but also how to celebrate with them as we see the gospel making inroads where there seem to be so many obstacles, so many roadblocks, the gospel still spreads. That should remind us and encourage us to be bold in our faith here as well. A great ministry. We're, we're really privileged to partner with them. If you want to find out more about Voice of the Martyrs, please give us a call, 508-362-7070. That's 508 362 seven zero seven zero. You know, God seems to be that sort of God. He tries he shows us that he makes a way where there seems to be no way. He's teaching us all along the way that we can trust him, even though there are so many things around us that would cause us to doubt God, there are so many more reminders in God's relationship with us that he has proven himself faithful. That is ultimately the story of Abraham. In this whole series, we've been talking about steps of faith, things that we do step by step to grow and to get closer to God and the lessons we learn along the way as we grow. But ultimately, what we're learning is not how to measure our faith, but ultimately how to remember the faithfulness of God. Here is my message as we continue to look at the story of Abraham and discover what he learns in God's faithfulness in his life. Abraham's story is messy, and it shows us a great deal about the question we asked at the beginning. What does salvation cost, and how do we get it? Abraham had a lifelong journey to understand the answer to this question. God gets the final words in this text. In verse 15 and 16, he answers Abraham one more time, and he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. And then he offers again the same promise that God has been making to Abraham all of these years. At least five times God had repeated that promise, that Abraham would possess the land and that he would be the father of many nations, And in all of that time, Abraham's working out in his mind, how is this going to happen? I can't do this, God. I can't do this. I don't have a child. I have no land. In fact, later on, when Sarah dies, he has to ask a local king if he could have a little small plot of land in which to bury her. Because after all of these promises, he's left looking, what do I actually have? I was given a promise, but what can I hold? Even my son God asked for him too at a particularly low point in Abraham's journey, when he was actually bold enough to, to talk back to God, to call God out, and say, God, you never actually gave me an heir. It's been many years now, and the only one I have is one of my servants. He's, he's actually in my will to receive all of my possessions. Is he going to be the one? Is, is my heir going to be the one who's going to make all the promises that you've, you've made to me and Sarah? So God reiterates his promise to him once again and says, you know what, Let's, I'm going to make a covenant with you. It's a very familiar practice. Abraham would have probably done this with others in his day. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, a contract, where you and I might sign a piece of paper with a legally binding document with the full force of our judicial system behind it to make sure that that is enacted. In, in Abraham's day, what they would do is take Animals cut them in half and place them on the side of a path. And they would hold hands and walk through that together and say, if either one of us reneges on our deal, this same thing should happen to us. So God says, I'll make a covenant with you. So Abraham cuts the animals. He puts them on both sides of the path, and he waits there. He sits down, and he waits for God to show up. And while he's sitting and waiting, he falls asleep. And it's while he's sleeping that God comes, and God walks through the sacrificed animals on his own. It's pretty morbid, but it helps us answer the question of what does salvation actually cost? And how do we get it? Because God went through on his own. At the cost of the life and the blood that was poured out, God made a covenant with Abraham that said, it's not going to be about you, what you can accomplish or what you can do on your own. I will do it. And in this story, he says, I I have sworn by myself, not by you, not by your works or your capabilities or your, your strengths or gifts or talents. It's not about you, it's about me. I have made this promise to you and I will keep it. When did Abraham become the father of many nations? When he had Isaac? <laughs> what nations, what land was he given? What nations spurned off of Isaac? One son who had two sons. What, what is happening here? When did Abraham become the father of many nations? It wasn't when Isaac was born, and it wasn't even here on this mountaintop. It's all the way back in chapter 12. In chapter 12, when God called Abraham, He makes His first promise. And the Lord, in verse 7 of chapter 12, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to "To your offspring I will give this land. And then down in verse 8, there He built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. In this phrase, We have our answer. This is where Abraham became the father of many nations. Before all of the mistakes, before all of the doubts, before all of the questions he had for God, here is where he became the father of many nations, because he believed God, he called out to God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The phrase, call on the name of the Lord, gives us a great picture into the whole of the Bible, probably the most important picture of the whole of the Bible. Because it says that after Adam and Eve were taken out of the garden, they were given a promise, a prophecy, that an offspring would come, that offspring would come and and crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent would bruise his heel. And so from the very beginning, they thought, maybe Cain will be our answer. But Cain turned out to be a murderer and killed Abel, so that took out two options. So maybe Seth would be their answer. But Seth led a whole wake of people into a devastation of sin and doubt and and misplaced faith and false worship that resulted in the flood. And then maybe Noah, maybe one of maybe Shem would be the answer. Ironically enough, Shem was alive during the lifetime of Abraham. And yet Shem wasn't the answer. So when Abraham was promised a land, When Abraham was promised that he would be given the promised land, what Abraham is thinking is he's going to get Eden back. And his son, the promised offspring, would be the one who brought it all into order. That's what it means when he says he called on the name of the Lord. He was calling on this promise, this ancient prophecy, that God would give them a son, an offspring, who would make everything right, the source of their salvation. So now you can sort of understand why all of a sudden Abraham is putting all of his faith and all of his hope and all of his trust in Isaac. We know then that Isaac was not the savior of the world, but it is through Isaac 2,000 years later that we are introduced to the one that this story so beautifully captures and parallels, the story of Jesus Christ. There are so many ways that we look at other people, especially people who are successful, and we try to, to break down what are the things that they're doing and how can I do those things and have the same results. Unfortunately, most of that doesn't work in the real world scenarios. You see all these people all of the time with real charisma, real excitement. They even fill up stadiums and and conference centers and they get all of these people and say, you can be as successful as I am. But the reality is the statistics are evidence to the fact that that is actually not true. There are so many other factors that have made that individual successful. So, what do we mean when we're telling us uh, to look at the story of Abraham, to model our life after him, and to learn from him how to have faith and trust in God? Ultimately, Abraham made a lot of mistakes, but what he did for for good is preserved for us in Scripture so that we can see how he grew closer in his walk with God. First, he responded to that initial call. When God called him to go to the land, he left all of his comforts, and he followed God. Then he called on the name of the Lord, and that is still for us today, to call on the name of the Lord, to cry out to God that God will be faithful to his own word. And then we see that uh, in uh, Genesis 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed God, and that was counted to him as righteousness. We see this same principle carried on into the New Testament, because what we, what we discover is that it's not based on our works, but it's based on our faith. Our salvation is on by faith alone. But this isn't a faith that Abraham has to then go and, and, and prove it to God, because we see in the very next story that as he falls asleep, God walks through the, the pathway of the covenant proclaiming that he is going to keep this covenant with Abraham and is not going to be dependent upon him. We see that again here in Genesis 22, that God swore on himself. That is where he got his credibility. That is where he kept his promise, not on the credibility of Abraham. And then we saw in in chapter 17 that Abraham circumcised himself and circumcised all of those in his family, because this was a sign of his faithfulness to follow God, his obedience to follow God, and to see that sin or his own actions are what kept him from getting close to God. So, in a desire to draw close to God in seeking Him, that we must make sacrifices in our lives. And then, All of it culminates here in chapter two, where Abraham and all of those lessons, all of those principles of things that he had learned in his time and in decades of experience led him to this point when God told him to take his son and sacrifice him. He did so in faith, knowing that God would keep his promises. Why? because God had always kept his promises. Knowing that God could even raise uh, Isaac from the dead if he killed his son, and believing that, that's what we see in Hebrews 11. Why? Because he believed that God would keep his promises. There was no reason for him to doubt that. In fact, God is not testing Abraham to prove his faith. That is the key element here. I want you to understand this. I've said this before, but I cannot say it enough. God was not testing Abraham to prove Abraham's faith. He was testing Abraham to prove his faithfulness to Abraham. And that is what makes all the difference. I hope that we've been able to encourage you today. If we have, we would love to hear from you, especially here in the middle of our year where we really do need your prayers and support. Maybe you've been a partner with the ministry in the past. Maybe it's been a while, or maybe you are faithful to send in your donation every single month. We want to thank you for your contributions. We also want to ask you consider how you can support the work that we're doing to spread this good news with the world around us. You can write to us at Songtime Radio, PO Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com or look us up on social media. Don't forget to tune in again tomorrow. We'll continue our study as we're looking at the story of Abraham with this great conclusion to this beautiful picture about how God proves his faithfulness to all who follow him. You say, well, this is a story for Abraham, but this really doesn't apply to me. He's not asking me to sacrifice everything, except when we see in the Gospels Jesus reiterate these same words when he says, anyone who comes after me cannot be my disciple unless he deny himself and follow me. On behalf of everyone here at Songtime and our late founder, Dr. John DeBrine, who has always encouraged you to grow in grace so that you won't groan in disgrace, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, Romans 4, 1-3. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness.